Welcome to season two, Anecdotal Anatomy, Science and Stories, where we sit with conversations with each other and our special guests about what it is to live in these bodies. What are the stories they hold and what are the stories they tell? In season one, we explored the layers of our being using the Yoga Kosha model. We told stories from a variety of different perspectives on and off the mat and offered practices to better understand and embody the definitions. In season two, we will be discussing ideas and sharing practices around the notion of embodiment. Is embodiment synonymous with being in alignment? Is it simply to give form to what would otherwise be formless? What does it mean when we embody emotions or when we're told that the body holds our traumas, our stresses, joys, and memories? Why is this important? Or at least, why is this an important enough topic to base a season on? A part of our mission is to connect individual stories to the collective experience of living in a body. To do this, we must first begin to unravel the mystery of embodiment. We do not endeavor to arrive at any hard conclusions, but we do hope for a spirited dialogue. Doing this podcast has us in a constant, acute state of wonder. Bring your curiosity with you as you listen and become part of the conversation. So this season, we're talking about embodiment. And we felt that to start the episode off, this is the first one of our our second season, we're going to actually start with some practices, just so that we can start from... uh, get a baseline of where we are. And then as we talk about what embodiment is, as we start diving into, you know, the conversations and the stories, you as the listener can have an experience. I mean, hopefully you're having an experience anyway, but an experience that is directly related to this idea of embodiment. And as you heard in the intro, the definition, as we'd like to go to the dictionary for these definitions, but the definition said it gives form to the formless, to, you know, to um, ideas and thoughts and feelings. And so sometimes it's really hard to, to get in there and, and know what's going on. One of the things as a 20 plus year practitioner and 10 plus year teacher of yoga and meditation that I've learned is that the breath is really a great indicator. It's a really good place to start because it's both tangible and intangible. It's From our autonomic nervous system, we breathe without thinking about it, but it's also that one thing that happens when we don't try, but we can also change it with intention. We can deepen our breath. We can recognize when we're in a scary moment or we're in a challenging moment or feeling stress, that our breath can get shallow, it can get fast. It's If we notice where how the breath is in any given moment, we might have a a good understanding of where we are in that moment. And this can get pretty esoteric. So let's let's start with just a basic awareness practice. So wherever you are, if you're in your car and you're driving, please stay present and keep your eyes on the road. You can do this, but stay with the activity at hand. If you're home or you're somewhere where it's safe to take a really grounded seat and maybe allow your eyes to close or allow your lids to drop, 
so that you're just maybe gazing four to six feet in front of you if your eyes are open. And if your eyes are closed, let the inner gaze drop. Let it drop down toward your heart. Sometimes we can allow that inner gaze to move up to the space where the third eye is between the brow. But for today, let it drop into your heart. And just notice. Because we're doing a podcast, I don't want to take too much time in silence. So while you're noticing, while you're taking the time to have awareness on your breath, maybe take a moment to also see if you can listen for a sound that is really super far away. And notice what that does to your breath. When you're concentrating on hearing something that is beyond your scope of hearing, notice what happens to your breath. And send your awareness to the back body. Maybe move a little side to side. Bring some, some movement so that you feel like, you know, your, your lungs and your heart, they share real estate within that rib cage area. So give it a little movement. And then find stillness, relative stillness. And as you breathe, notice the edge of your breath. Where do you stop? Where does your body expand to and then contract on the exhale? If you tend to naturally reverse breathe, see if you can inhale and expand as you exhale, gently contract. It may be challenging if you naturally breathe in a reverse way, but just notice. Maybe you never noticed that you breathe in reverse. That's something good to know. You know, we're working on this idea of embodiment. And breath is one way in. We breathe through our nose. We breathe through our mouth. These are ways into the body. And then we can release and let it go. So we also know that when things are observed, they change. We're not deliberately changing the breath. We're just noticing it. And now that you've had a few moments to just notice, begin to deliberately increase your inhalation. Let it expand a little bit deeper, a little bit wider. Fill your lungs a little bit more. When you get to the top of your inhalation, sip in just a little more breath. And as you exhale to the bottom of your breath, exhale a little bit more. You didn't even know you had that, did you? This is the beginning of the awareness of the depth of the breath, the texture, the temperature, all of the qualities of breath that we don't always think about or give much consideration to. So the purpose of even paying attention to breath in the context of this conversation is to notice the feelings that go with the breath. So when you deepen the breath, do you feel yourself dropping more into your parasympathetic nervous system, a sense of more calm, a sense of more relaxation? Spoiler alert, chances are good that you are. <laughs> and now take a deep breath in and sigh it out. <sighs> and then just return to your natural breathing. Let your your background operating system, do the breathing for you. And every once in a while, when you have a sensation, first thing I'm going to ask you to do is just check in on your breath. Don't judge it. 
if you feel you want to change it to deepen it to have a different experience well now you have a choice because you've you've seen it you've experienced it and acknowledged it and now you can work with it from this place of calm and ease to put one hand over the heart and maybe place the other hand on the abdomen in the area of the diaphragm Maybe with this sense of touch, you can deepen your awareness of your breath even more. Noticing all the movements that happen as the breath flows in. And the movements as the breath flows out. Notice the rhythm of the heart. So we're taking a step into the sensations of the body, into the feeling sense. So beneath your hands, these are awareness tools to take us deeper in, into these interoceptive clues the body has to offer. Can you feel your heart beat? Are you aware of the sensation that with each inhale, as the lungs expand, they actually hug the heart. And as they exhale, they give the space for the heart to expand and pump. So as the breath flows in, and the breath flows out. Notice, how are you feeling? Can you tap into sensations without the story that accompanies them? What is the rhythm of the heart beat? What's its pace? And as you connect with its Thump, 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 thump. There are other places in the body, other pulses that share the same rhythm. Notice the diaphragm and the abdomen with this breath. And here's an awareness tool. Are you a reverse breather? As you inhale, does the abdomen come up to greet the palm of your hand? Or does it soften away from it? And so we feel the exchange, the ebb and the flow. The heart, the lungs, the diaphragm. And then maybe releasing the hands and letting them rest in the lap. And how does that change the sensation of feeling your heartbeat? Of noticing the contraction and relaxation of the diaphragm. Then with the next breath, simply visualize the lungs, giving the heart a lot of love, giving the heart 
a great big hug. That was so beautiful. I got to say, you know, one of the, I'm sorry, were you done? Yes. That I feel took me to new places. You know, one of the reasons I felt that this, this topic of embodiment was so important right now was because here we are sort of, I want to say near the end of this pandemic, because things are opening up, you know, my kids' school, now the masks are, are um, recommended, but not mandatory. And, you know, there's a lot of feeling that two years plus, we're kind of, you know, moving into an, a new space. But during this pandemic, and, you know, especially during the forced quarantine, and, you know, so many of us were disembodied from the structures that we worked within, whether they were work structures, relationship structures, yeah, um, social structures. We had to redefine that through you know, Zoom and other ways to connect with each other and ourselves. And so you know, having these practices, I felt very grateful that I'd already been on a path of, of practice so that I could create and at least manage this feeling of disembodiment from, from a real place, from, from actual practices. And so just the, the breath awareness alone creates a structure or at least gives the structure of the body a place to settle, a place to know that we can to bring the energy to a, a, a manageable, workable place so that we can reimagine our structure, so that we can re-embody. And I think the timing of this pandemic was so particularly potent that we, you know, in order to embody, sometimes we need to disembody. And it came to us at a time when I think we really needed to re-examine the structures that we live in. And for some people, it was abiding time. It was a time to wait until we could return to whatever it was. For many people, though, it was an opportunity to, to look fresh at life, at the way things, you know, have been working and what was working and what, you know, we talk in our practices a lot about what no longer serves us. But when we're in the pattern or we're in the habit, it's hard to know if it's serving us or not. But this time took us out of all of that. And so from that disembodied, fragmented place, we get to start again to reassemble, remember. And that was beautiful. Yeah, I loved starting with a, a practice to kind of set the tone for myself. I always like to calm down before <laughs> we're getting into work. And, and it was just beautiful to just reconnect with my breath after a hectic day as well. So thank you. And I'm so happy that we um, start at this place of disembodiment. We gave a definition of what embodiment is. But this idea of disembodiment takes us back into last season. A number of our guests, Dr. Wendy, Warner, Val, Shauna Ahern, all talked about their earlier days and the amount of attention that was put on intellect, on learning, on being in their head, even without listening to each other because they did not have the benefit of hearing the other conversations before we spoke with them, had a similar phrase. My body was just a thing to carry my brain around. And I think it's important for us to recognize here that the brain and our thoughts being in our head is very much a masculine 
energy. And I want to clarify, because I'm saying this, that it's not male, it's not gender specific, no matter how we identify, we have both male and female energies within us. But the male tends to be our body carrying our brains around. We, our culture celebrates doing, Shauna talked a lot about this, that we don't think we have value if we're not accomplishing something. And we do, we put a lot of celebration and a lot of our focus on what we can accomplish. And it's often our go-to, or it's off, I should say not ours. I'm gonna say it's often my go-to. It's my default to overthink it, to be very cerebral, right? We, we already talked about my woo-woo factor, which I'm not saying that male or female is woo-woo or not woo-woo, <laughs> but I am saying that my default has always been one of that was much more left or male-brained, linear thought, science, cerebral in my approach. I can, you know, I'm going to say it. I am an overthinker. I love the word strategize or a good Excel spreadsheet, the things that engage that part. So it's not that one is better than the other. They're both extremely important. It's the balance of how we use male and female. But it can be exhausting to be in your head all the time and not to connect with what I'm really experiencing and how I feel in each and every moment. So I have a question about that because I do, I, I hear those things all the time. And I think that it's, it's a completely valid experience that there are so many overthinkers in our culture and what we celebrate. And I think that even in the conversation when we talk about embodiment, we can't exclude the brain you know, in service of the sensation or the, the experience that the brain part of embodiment, the way I see it is the incorporation of that piece of recognizing that aspect and seeing how it connects and fires up with the other experiences of the body. So, I mean, I know we both have stories about when we have had a physical experience and then let our brains take over. And I used to always say we rationalize in and out of favor according to our will. And will feels very much like a brain function. But when we're having an experience that, hi, Siva, there's an experience right there. When we're having the experience to filter it through the brain, but, you know, we know that the filter's job is to kind of get all the impurities out, you know, and so that what comes through is what we really want to be drinking or thinking or experiencing. So if we can think of the brain as kind of like a filter or a lens through which we can make sense of what's going on, then it becomes a partner rather than the lead. I don't really know. I mean, I feel like we're not here to have answers, but there's so much inquiry. There's so much in the habit of talking about certain things that in service of one, we tend, I will say, I, I tend to exclude the other, but for the thing that seems that, that we want to deny. So if we're more in our head, if I'm more in my head, then I think it's more important that I work through the feeling in my body and then you know deal with the head later. If I'm all about sensation and feeling, then I think I need to activate more of my brain to be able to balance that. And that's where the coaches, I think, 
become an interesting model to work with because it is they're separated, but they're all part of the same system. I agree totally that the brain is part of embodiment. It's it has to be. It's part of our body. I think for me, sometimes I've stepped away from the sensation. It's when we exclude it rather than give it an equal say, an equal part of our entire whole self. And our feminine energy, and again, not gender specific, is one that has less focus or it has in my life. And I feel that it may have in others is that it has a little bit less. I don't know what to use. I, I kind of want to say it has not as much breadth of value in some cult, in some instances as being intelligent, smart, productive. But I personally feel that as we have gone through this journey, the time that we've been in exploring the koshas, talking about them, the years on and off the mat, is that I learned that I'm yin. And that if I take that time, not that I'm going to devalue the thing, my doing. Doing is an important part. Action is a really important part of everything that we create. But I'm learning to flip it a little bit and sit with it, see how different things feel within my body, to give myself the space to re-engage, to connect with that female energy, and at least let it have as equal of a say as my doing energy, and to understand what it is I feel and what it is I want, because it's a felt sense, not because I thought it through and said, oh, I need to do that which is so interesting because you were also extremely intuitive. And I know that I've surrounded myself or magnetized, I don't know, whatever the word would be, but I find myself, I'm always in community with highly intuitive women. Some men, you know, I'm not saying this is where like the male, female energy, where sometimes I have a lot of male energy in me, um, which has denied my own intuitive nature at times, which is I think one of the reasons I have so many intuitives around me as a mirror or some kind of reflection that this is equally as valid. And I know I had an experience. <laughs> My husband has chronic illness. And in the beginning, I'm not laughing at that. In the very beginning, when we were just trying to figure out what it is that he has, I was the second time we ended up in the emergency room. This is pre-pandemic. And the doctor, I actually wrote a poem about this. I had such an experience with his narcissism and his arrogance that he was talking about the very scientific things, which are great. I, that's why we go for, to the doctor. We want the scientific method. But I contributed something about another sense. There was some kind of odor that was happening. My husband does not smell. He's like, doesn't even wake up with bad breath. This is not a guy who ever stinks. He could run a mile and still smell like roses. But when this episode was happening, there was an odor. And I mentioned it to the doctor thinking, maybe this is associated with the episode. And if other people would report things like that, then we'd have, this is the anecdotal part of the scientific method that we tell our stories. And when enough people say, oh, I have the same thing he has. And there was this odor in that moment. It didn't happen again, but he dismissed me 
as if anything I said that it was all woo. And I was approaching it from a very real place that felt like here's a body, part of my sense memory or in my senses, I took in the experience of the odor and, you know, and everything else that was happening that what my husband was embodying and it was scary and his arrogance. And I felt there was a disembodied moment there where I thought, you know what, he can't really help. And he didn't really help. You know, he was no help, but there was a sense of, you know, our senses give us data. We do. And embodiment can and being in our emotions can sometimes be a bit messy sometimes when i come and i sit with something it's a little messy inside when i'm just you know trying to feel trying to experience it can get uncomfortable mm-hmm. and i feel that embodiment you know when i first started reading thinking about embodiment hearing it I kind of went to, you know, some common things I heard, like she embodies so much peace, you know, she embodies love and it sounded fabulous. But I also recognize that embodiment is creating space for all emotions, for all sensations. And at times that asks me to be open and vulnerable to experiences, to create the space to be sad. I remember being <laughs> being with um, a younger female, and she, she was in her teens, and she was having difficulty with her boyfriend and was really upset. They broke up, and she was sad, and she was really embodying and creating the space for sadness. But it was going on for a long time, and so at some point in time, we need to also or it's important that we create the space, feel it, embody it, but also then transform into what we need to do next. So it was great because I took this opportunity to go out, buy two quarts of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, two sp- <laughs> got two spoons, and we found the best tear-jerking movie, I really don't remember what it was, to sit and eat the whole thing of ice cream while we watched the movie, and cried and gave this outlet for the tears that needed to be shed, the emotions that needed to be felt, but also a a space to say there's going to be a time limit. We can't get stuck either in that embodiment of any one thing where it keeps its hold on us. So the feeling, the sitting with, sometimes it's messy, And she was embodying sadness. She was embodying abandonment. But ice cream in the movie really helped a lot (laughs) to give this great outlet. (laughs) And And it's a journey. You know, when you're feeling acute sadness, that may not be the time to talk about embodiment. You know, it's just the time to feel the sadness. And if you are on a path of of practices and of thinking about things in terms of like the the two words that I've been hearing more and more this last year, embodiment was one of them and reflection was the other one. And so this feeling of embodiment is, it's not just a feeling of embodiment, it's a journey to embodiment. And it got me thinking about, you know, I've been practicing yoga and meditation for about almost 23 years or so, and even more so, but it wasn't called that. 
I did, that's another whole long story. We did all sorts of yoga poses in my acting training, but they were never called yoga poses. Anyway, I digress. But you know, in the beginning, I entered the yoga room, the studio, just because I was at, said, you have to take this class. I think I addressed this in last season. And I wasn't really someone who loved physical exercise, but I was in there and I was, you know, doing the poses and, you know, people were talking about energy and sort of the evolution of the practice brought me into the philosophy, brought me into, you know, the deeper layers of what it had to offer. But even with that, even with having those experiences, 20 plus years later, I'm having embodied experiences through my practices that I never thought were possible. I thought I had hit the edge of what the practice was going to mean for me and my body and my mind and my spirit and all of that. And that just showing up each day was keeping me in this sort of level place. And I don't mean that in terms of like doing the practice kept me from freaking out or from having a range of human experiences because I have all those experiences, trust me. <laughs> but it, it was just, this is what it is. And this is what I can expect from it when I show up on my mat, even with the little aha moments, even with, you know, these discoveries that I had along the way, even just this morning, I sat down for my meditation and I sit pretty much almost every morning. And I did a practice called wind horse, which I learned at the Shambhala center back in like the late nineties, early two thousands. And it's a practice that sort of brings in confidence and it recognizes the groundedness of being, the duality of being, the oneness of being, and then the, the universal sadness. And then this place where we can just radiate ourselves out there. I'm not going to get into the whole instruction, but it's, it's a complete practice. And this morning, I've done it so many times and had a lot of different experiences. But today, I will say likely the first time when I got to the universal sadness I cried. I felt in my body the sadness. Now, it may be also that today would have been my mother's 84th birthday, and I was thinking about her, and her energy was with me. I don't happy know birthday, what. Joe. Happy birthday, Mom. Um, I don't know what that was, but I, I, I don't know how many times I've done this meditation, but it was the first time I felt the sadness in my body. And then when I radiated out the, the goodness, I felt a whole different experience in that radiating. So my body had a whole other sense of what this, the possibility of this meditation or this beginning of my meditation. So all of that is to say that there's room, even as we journey through embodiment, to be surprised and to increase the, the experience of embodiment. It's an interesting topic, yeah, to... to... Because what I was reflecting on earlier was times in my life where I know I was very much in my head. And I can look back at those times and I think I was in my head as a great place of an escape. If I stay in my head, I don't have to experience that. But what I recognized was that my body was quiet, almost numb. It wasn't communicating because because no matter how hard it tried to communicate, I just put that down and said, no, what do I have to do next? Mm -hmm. And I got very much into the doing mode, into the accomplishment mode. I even had a reputation. If you want it done, ask Teresa to do it and it will get done. <laughs> I never had that reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Good to know. Good to know. 
Yes. So, you know, I could multitask and get it done. I, I could think it through. But what I recognized is I gave up this connection to my intuition at parts of my life that I can look back on and reflect. I gave up trusting my intuition or listening to that little knowing voice inside that's saying, we know what to do. And my brain would say, eh, that's not a great idea. And going back and forth, I stopped and I stopped recognizing that sensation of the hair standing up on the back of my neck as a warning. Hey, maybe this isn't the best place for you to be right now. And I was reminded of an article that I read when I was preparing for today that humans are the only species, the only animals on earth that train ourselves to not trust our own instincts. That's how smart we are. We don't need our instincts because we have bodies to carry our brains around. And sometimes that can get us into some trouble. Uh, it gets me into trouble because when my intuition is speaking to me and I was like, yeah, I don't have to pay attention to when my instincts are giving me a signal that I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. It's easy to step into a space that I don't want to be in mm -hmm. and, or maybe not be able to step out of a space um, that I'm stuck in. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because sometimes in order to get out of those stuck places, we need the fuel to do that. And I can think of at least three times right now as I'm sitting here where my physical experience, my heart rate accelerating, my body getting heat generated, this feeling that I know I have to do something that is going to be super uncomfortable, super outside my comfort zone, but I have to do it. And those things, the heart rate and the heat and that feeling of almost, it, it was an anxious feeling, but that became the indicator that I needed to not override, but to pay attention to that language, because that meant that I had to do something that I didn't want to do. And the first time, I'm going to tell just a couple little stories. I was a camp counselor um, at a camp in Northern Michigan after high school, between high school and college. And, you know, I was there, I, I got to direct the, the musical and the play we did Through the Looking Glass, and then we did Grease. It was so much fun. I got to direct it. I got to, you know, choreograph it, which is not my thing at all. But it was, you know, I was a theater person. I was going to NYU for theater to be an actor, but I also had this director side. And so that's what I was meant to do, but they wanted me to also do something else. So they were like, what else can you do? And I was like, well, I did archery and gym class. I sucked at it, but I just put that down. And don't you know, they made me the fucking director of the girls archery. And a good thing that the boys director was really cute that the girls all were like hanging around him. And, you know, I didn't have to do much. He was good. I would always miss the, the target. But anyway, so I was directing both shows. I was, you know, doing the archery. I was, my co-counselor was very nice, but she wasn't really present. She was there for, you know, to socialize. And so I was the one also with 12, 13 year old girls teaching them how to deal with their changing hormones and they're just menstruating for the first time. So I'm teaching them how to use pads and like all that stuff. I'm working my ass off that summer. And really as, as not a completely embodied person, I was just turned 18 that summer. 
So it got to the point where I'm talking to my co-counselor and I learned she has one year of college under her belt. I just was going into college. I worked five times harder than her that summer and she made twice what I made. And so I thought I need to advocate for myself. I need to at least ask the director for a raise. I need to say this, in, this discrepancy cannot go, un, I'm not acknowledged. So I feel that, that, that fear, like the, the tingling, the, whatever, the, the butterflies in my belly, what are the metaphors that we use to you know, feel that? And I go into the little room and I tell him, and I'm feeling, I'm beginning to cry. That's how much emotion is building up in this body that has never asked for what I felt I deserved before in that way. So I'm, I got out what I needed to say and I'm crying a little bit and he was very kind. And he said, you know, we, we do our budget at the beginning of the summer, you signed a contract and sorry, there's nothing we can do. And when I left and I walked away, I felt more in my body than I had ever felt. I didn't get what I wanted, but I got everything I wanted. And what I wanted was, because I knew as I was walking in there that I was setting a precedent if I didn't ask for it, I most likely wouldn't ask in the future. But if I took the risk and asked for it, what's the worst thing that can happen is he'll say no. And he did, that was the worst thing. And I walked away a little more embodied. There was a jigsaw puzzle piece of my embodiment that got placed in its rightful space in that moment. And then that led, and I'm sorry, I know I'm going to be talking a little bit here, but then that led to another moment where I was interning for an, a talent agent in New York that I had burned a bridge for another talent agency who wanted me to work for them. But a friend of my mother's friend asked me if I would work for this guy. And so I was like, all right, I got nothing to lose. And I did because the other agency never wanted to touch me after that. I'm not going to use any names, but this guy was really hard to work for. And I mean, like, for example, I would be on the phone with someone who would call and he would, I would say it's so-and-so and he would say, tell that asshole I'm not here. Well, wait a minute, that asshole just heard you say that. So now you're asking me to, and I every day had the butterflies, every day would walk in afraid of what he was going to ask me to do and all of this, whatever. So it got to the point where I was done. He had hired me after that, after my internship. And I was just, I was done. There was nothing he had left to offer me that was worth the abuse I felt that I was experiencing under his, his bossiness. So I walked into his office. And I let him know. I let him know exactly how I felt. I was very direct. I was very stern. I don't think I yelled. I may have yelled a little. I don't know. But I was very direct. And at one point, I said something like, and you leave every day and you leave us here and you go to the gym and whatever, you know, whatever I said. And he said, you stepped over the line with that. And I paused and I said, you know what? You're right. I did step over the line with that. Everything else right on target. But I felt in that moment, I walked out, I was shaking. My body was physically shaking, standing at the elevators, waiting just to get the fuck out of there. And he comes out and he's like, can you come back in? I have a meeting and I don't want to leave the office. And I was like, all right. But I felt powerful in that moment. I had walked back in. He told everyone I had a nervous breakdown, whatever. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that's not true. But I was strong. Another puzzle piece put into the embodiment space there. I'm just going to tell one more because it fits right into this trilogy. Another boss I was working for, who I've, one of my dearest friends from that time still. This was back in the mid-90s. It was um, research marketing. And <laughs> the funniest part about this is that all of the assistants that preceded me and were there post my position there, they started a support group because the boss was so hard and so mean that they had to start a support group about her. 
But the thing was that she didn't really have power over me because this wasn't my business. This wasn't something I, I, it was something I needed in the moment. I was temping for her, but I had designs on other work, on other things I was moving toward. This was just, a, you know, a space to rest and make my rent. So, you know, there's a lot of shenanigans that go on. And at the very end, she knows that I'm leaving in two weeks, that I have a job in my field and I'm about to leave. So she hires someone. I train her. There's a week left. And all I'm doing is sitting on the couch eating bonbons while the person she hired is doing the work. And she's still paying the temp agency for me. So you'd think she'd want to get rid of me really fast. So I hear that this new job is starting like two days rather than a week. So the first thing I did, which was, I want to say this to anyone else who's doing this, call your temp agency first. I called them first. I told them what I was about to do. I was going to let her know that I was going to be leaving sooner than she thought, but everything was in place. I was not leaving her high and dry. So I tell my temp agency, they're like, all right, that's cool. Go for it. So I walk into the boss lady's office and I sit down and I tell her thinking on some level, she'll be excited for me. I'm getting a job in my field. She already has this new person. She doesn't have to be double paying. And so I tell her and she says to me, well, you've screwed me over, whatever. You really fucked me over. I'm going to call your temp agency and I'm going to tell them. And I sat there. I was so calm, so uncharacteristically calm. I think the other two experiences embodied me for this moment. And I said, I can live with that. That's all I said. I can live with that. She was furious. You could see. And I got up. I walked out, I slowly picked, and I, as I'm leaving again to the elevator, she's like, you're coming back tomorrow to get your stuff, right? And I was like, yeah, I'll be back tomorrow. And she sent the new girl out to get me a gift the way she sent me out to get my, my predecessor a gift. But all of that is to say that if I had not had those other experiences to inform me, to embody, to put those pieces in place, I might still fucking be working there. I don't know. I wouldn't be. I don't live in New York anymore, but it was it was empowering. And I think that road to embodiment is empowerment. And you had a lot of recognition of how you felt and how you wanted to proceed without being worried about is what is this action that I'm going to take the right action, the wrong action. You knew from your body, from how you felt that you need you wanted to take an action. But I want to say this. I want to say, I don't know that I knew my body was telling me it was okay. Mm. I look back now, this is a trap I have found myself in a few times, telling stories from my past as if I had my acquired wisdom of today then. And I didn't. I didn't have the body awareness then. I look back. I remember feeling the butterflies. I remember feeling very scared and nervous and doing it anyway, but I didn't have the wisdom to know that I was becoming embodied. This is all in retrospect. I have a kind of a fun um, embodiment story for myself. So at one point in time, I don't remember what year it was, I decided I wanted to take a public speaking class because I knew it would take me out of my comfort zone. I was quiet. I did not speak up for myself a lot. I wanted to move forward with a whole variety of different choices and careers that I was considering. And I knew that being able to communicate would be a real asset for me. And I also knew how hard this class was going to be because I'd never liked being the center of attention. I'm number five of eight, so (laughs) 
<laughs> being the center of attention, which is not a good or a bad thing. It just in hierarchy, that's just not how it how it played out in my life. So I decided to take a, a public speaking class. At the same time that I'm taking that course, I'm also in a dog training. So this goes back, it wasn't Amy. I know Amy was on, but this was before I met Amy, another fabulous trainer. And I had a dog named Jinx. And I was taking dog training classes or both ends of the leash training classes because the two came together right away. And because I was training Jinx, the project I chose for uh, my final project for the course was nonverbal communication. Because one of the things I loved doing with Jinx was taking the commands and the, and the trainer had taught me to do this, taking the commands, the verbal commands we were using and turn them and, and accompany them and, and marry them to a hand signal. And as we moved forward, we were able to get rid of the verbal cue and I could just use the hand signal and she would respond. She was amazing. Oh, she was such a good dog. What I learned in this process was that she communicated with me non-verbally as much as I communicated with her. Like, I'm thirsty. So she would go and kick her water bowl, which was, could you please get me some water? I have to go potty. And she would knock her leash. She was communicating with me. And through the process, I started to recognize that she was really great nonverbal communicator. The other thing that happened was there's a bond and dogs are amazing at reading energy. We talked about this with Amy last season. So here I am, I decide that I'm gonna bring Jinx into the amphitheater where I was doing my presentation with all of these people standing up around, sitting up around me and me down on the floor to present and it's me and Jinx and my stomach is in butterflies. I am sweating. I know that my voice is shaking while I'm trying to talk to myself inside. I could, I could hear what my voice was going to sound like when it came out. I could feel my hands shaking and I was, I just didn't know what I was going to do. So I paused noticing that I just couldn't start and thought, I'm just gonna go over, bend over, have a little communication with Jinx, and it might appear as if it's part of my presentation. So I bend down and Jinx is in a sit stay and I bend down and we're nose to nose. And she, <laughs> I don't know if she felt my energy, but if you've ever taken a public speaking course, humor is one of the things they talk about starting with. So I bend down, I've gotten the mic on my chest, we're nose to nose, and she lets out the biggest burp you have ever heard <laughs> into my microphone. And the whole crowd busts up laughing. <laughs> and the laughter just, once I felt the laughter and that vibration in my body, I stood up and I was like, all right, Jinx, we are ready now. And we stepped in. So she was able to feel my embodied nervousness. I don't know that she planned it. I don't think she called upon that burp, but the timing was impeccable. I don't think I've ever known that dogs burped. I've, I've had dogs. I've never heard them burp. I've heard them fart. I've never heard them burp. <laughs> Actually, I don't know that I've heard them fart. I've definitely been on the receiving odiferous end of their fart. Um, but that's a great story. 
and you know what happened i mean with that was that in the dog training or in the public speaking part i was in the public speaking class <sighs> you know our energies connected Jinx and I were very much in tune with each other. Probably, you know, she chose me. She energetically decided that she was going to come live with me. I went to pick out a dog and there was this litter of puppies all running around. And how do you know which one of those cute ones to pick? I love them all. If I had it my way, I would be grabbing them all up and bringing them home. But instead I sat down in the middle of the field and watched them. And she came over, crawled up, laid on my lap. And somehow this energy, we can call it an embodied connection. We can call it a lot of things. She felt me and she chose me. And that's how she came home and started her forever home with us. That's amazing. I used to tell her everything, which might be why she knew me so well. Every night when I would take her for a walk, Whatever happened in my day, I told Jinx. And I was able to work through emotions. I was able to feel. And I was also able to share those feelings without worrying about judgment because she's a dog. They love their unconditional love. You can tell them anything. And um, <laughs> they're always- They might burp in your face. <laughs> yeah, I might burp in your face, but they'll definitely love you till the end of their days. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, we love our dogs. Oh, man. But that story, and I do have to say that I've been a yoga practitioner as well, just like you, for many, many years. I don't even know when I started. Sometime around that same time I had Jinx, I was also, I think, is when I started my yoga classes. But it wasn't until I was at the Prancing Peacock over in Yardley that I was first introduced to yin yoga. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I didn't like it. Sitting there, having to observe my thoughts, having to find a way to stay still, even through discomfort with whatever was coming up, to create the space to embody any emotion, to give it time for me to observe it, to sit with it, to feel it. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I'm, I'm you know, again, left brain Teresa who's working on having more balance, but yin is that female energy. And it's probably the first time that I can really remember that I had a strong connection to how I felt versus what I thought. And, you know, yin, it invites us to embrace stillness, to sit, go ahead the way you described it is the way I would teach meditation. If I didn't know you were talking about the yin yoga practice, which I also love, but what I love about it is the meditation aspect of it, that, you know, we're using our minds, our thoughts, our thoughts become part of our embodied process. You know, that in meditation, we don't look to eradicate the thought. We look to be curious about the nature of our thinking. And so how does that factor into embodiment? I was always, I, I was fascinated the first time I heard, I always thought yoga, I think asana, I think of the practice that we do on the mat. And I think of the physical body. The first time I was introduced to Ayurveda, which is the sister science to yoga, the, the Indian science of wellness, that they were described as yoga of the mind. 
Ayurveda of the body. And I found that to be really interesting because I would have switched them around. I would have said they're opposites. But then, you know, the yin and the yang, they each have a little dot of the other within them. And so, you know, as far as embodiment goes, we need to be able to work with our thoughts. We need to be able to work with our emotions and our feelings and our energy and all of that. Those koshas, there's a reason we started with the koshas. So if you're getting confused and you didn't listen to season one, go back to the koshas because they're all, that's the beginning, I think, in at least the way we're framing this conversation of this idea of embodiment. You know, we can separate out these different aspects, but in the end, they're all part of the same operating system. Yeah, I mean, I believe that embodiment is part of that operating system, the connection to our body, our sensations, um, allowing ourselves to be receptive and trust in our like felt messages. The messages come out out of feelings. So we have software and we have hardware. Yep, yes, have hardware. And then the software, some of it, like the autonomic nervous system is that operating system software in the background, you know, and then as our systems are working and doing their thing, we have, you know, whatever the processing unit is. And then, you know, we have, so it's, you've talked so much about, you know, the elements within the elements without that we can identify. It's the same with the koshas all of this. It's so, so interesting. So I hope that we wet your whistle, uh, wet your whistle, wet your appetite for imagination, embodiment. Uh. I have so many fabulous guests on the list for this season. I was blown away by the guests that graced us with their, their thoughts and uh, their time in last season and super excited to <laughs> You can say it. We've already done the interview for the next the next episode. Okay. And so we can tell you how fucking amazing it is and how you don't want to miss Corey Finer. She's oh. I mean, if you and especially if you like poetry. Mm. Even if you don't, though, you'll love her. That's what I'm gonna say. Poetry has always been challenging for me. And with you and Corey and other, and I'm not as well versed with all of the different poets, but oh. My, I left that interview so, so excited and I had learned so much. But what I really, really loved, little spoiler alert, <laughs> tiny, tiny one, is that she made poetry so accessible for me. Every time she does a reading or I, I experience her work, I feel a little smarter when, I, when she's done. And she beautifully puts together science and stories. Yes. There's, yes. A, there's a lot of body information, so much science that she's researched that informs how she creates her poetry and what she's writing about. So don't miss it. The dictionary says embodiment is the tangible, visible manifestation of an idea, quality, or feeling. How does that reconcile with today's conversation? Is embodiment limited to its tangibility? Can we simply feel embodied? Is embodiment full integration of the five koshas? Or is it all of the above and then some? We hope today's episode provided a starting point, at least for deeper inquiry. Join us next week when our guest, Poet Laureate Emeritus of Bucks County, Corey Finer, helps us expand our definitions of embodiment through poetry. You don't want to miss it. <laughs>